Welcome to the Into Christianity podcast. I'm Isaac, joined by Angela, and we do have a guest today that I'll introduce shortly. Today we're going to talk about doubt in the Christian life. So a little while ago, John Steingard, he is the lead singer or guitarist, or he was, of Hawk Nelson, a Christian rock band, and he renounced his faith publicly. And there are many reasons for this, but he did admit that whenever he had a doubt or question, it terrified him because it could have threatened his livelihood as a Christian rock star. So he pushed his doubts down and did not talk about them for a while until he was at a place where he felt he could no longer claim to be Christian. While most Christians may not have their livelihoods dependent on a public proclamation of faith, the feeling of anxiety or fear when doubts and questions creep up is a common one. This has led many Christians to block them from their mind, and many churches to view doubting as a sign of a weak faith or even a betrayal of our Lord. And then in reaction to this, the new buzzword these days is deconstruction, an idea that seems to view questioning and even rejecting the historic doctrines of Christianity as virtuous. So how should Christians approach doubts? And is doubting always bad? To help answer these questions, I have invited one of my former philosophy professors, Dr. Travis Dickinson, to the podcast. Dr. Dickinson was my professor at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and is currently a professor of philosophy at Dallas Baptist University. And his field in philosophy is epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. Because of this, he has written about faith, rational belief, and doubt, including in his newest book, Wandering Toward God which is a book about approaching and handling doubt as a Christian. I have read it, and it is quite good, so we encourage our listeners to buy it and check it out. Welcome, Dr. Dickinson. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you guys, for sure. Um, is there anything more you want to say about yourself, and also, like, what led you to write a book like this? Yeah, um, I, I think the biggest thing is my own journey, of course. So just, and I write about this in the book, uh, but just my own sort of struggles with doubts. But I think like you hear, you know, so many stories like the John Steingard story where people seemingly start to deconstruct and question and it leads them to, you know, walk away from the faith. When my story was one in which I questioned and had doubts and it completely strengthened my faith and so i think the fact that i I, it it suggests that we don't handle or do doubt well and so i think my my goal is to try to address that difference and say what you know what why is there such a difference and is there a way to approach these things that lead us to knowledge and truth and and even a greater faith Okay, so maybe a good starting point would be to define something like doubt. Like, how would you define or describe doubt? And is it a good or bad thing? Because just to start us off, if it's not so bad, um, why do several passages in Scripture seem to view it so negatively? So I'll just bring up one of them, and there's a couple others we could bring up. Um, James chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, it says, But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, 
being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yeah. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound very good at all. Um, No, right. And I, so I try to walk a careful um, line here in a way because there are two extremes that I think are out there for sure. One that says doubt is a bad thing and we should avoid it, run away, you know, uh, and so on. And then there's another extreme that says doubt is a wonderful thing and we need to celebrate it. And that's, you know, deconstructions, this like, you know, um, you know, that's where we should stay. And, and I don't, I reject both of those. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's um, something to be celebrated. And I, you know, my sort of way I always put it is just to say that doubt is not the destination. Um, but it, it can be an important stop, uh, sort of stop off. And, and, and this, I, this question of like, is it good or bad? And, and I need to say what doubt is here real quickly before I get too deep into it. But um, is it good or bad? Well, I don't know. I, it, it's sort of like it, it just happens to us a lot of times. So there's, there's undoubtedly people out there in our churches who just are doubting and it doesn't help a lot to say, hey, that's a bad thing. <laughs> Knock it off. Uh, you know, stop doing it. Because they're sitting there saying, I can't turn this off. I, I have doubts. I need to know what to do about them. To say that leaning into these and th- that there's a value to this doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily to say that they doubting is therefore a good thing. That, that's the point. It's just to say, it can be a value as we lean in, and and so so what is doubt? Let's let's first start there. Uh, for me, I, I what I try to do because doubt I think manifests in so many different ways. Um, you know, there there are ways in which people have emotional struggles of doubt, and I and I get that, and I'm and I'm super sympathetic to people who have like a kind of emotional like like for them it's not like an intellectual thing so much as this this deep struggle. I met a member, a student that came into my office one time, we had been on a mission trip together and she was really struggling in her faith. And her struggle was that, was with the problem of evil, but not an intellectual struggle. It was just that we had been to a, a, a tough place where there's lots of poverty and watching these little kids like suffer. Um, she just couldn't kind of like square that in a way. Um, even though she could give me all the intellectual answers. And so I think doubt can manifest as e- emotional sorts of states. I think that doubt can um, manifest even in like moral behavior at times and so on. And I think that's what James is talking about, by the way. But I'll get there in a second. Um, but what I would try to do in the book is boil doubt down to a sort of core um, state or core thing. Like, So what is the core reality of doubt? I think of it as just the tension that we feel um, when we have questions. So doubt is quite common in that sense, right? So it's sort of like, it's when it's when one of our beliefs, so another way that I'll put it is that it's when one of our beliefs seems like it might be false. It's that experience of it seeming like this may be false. <laughs> and so we've all probably had that experience where we, uh, are real confident about something, um, and then as we and then somebody challenges it, that belief, or uh, you know, so, some we have some experience or other, and we start to like 
wonder, oh man, this, this might be false. Well, I, I think of that as just, that's that core state of doubt. And it may not be a big deal for some of us. I routinely forget things. I'm, I can be very spacey uh, at times. It drives my wife crazy at times, um, just being honest. Um, me too, me and, too. <laughs> okay, yeah. So like th- there's all kinds of times where I have just I've been real confident that, you know, my schedule is free for the day and I could schedule something or I can, you know, and then realize that, no, remember you were supposed to do this or that. And it's like, oh, right. So, and I start to like think, okay, maybe that confidence was misplaced. And I, I just think, but it's not that big a deal at the in the big scheme of things. Again, it might be annoying, but it's not, it's different from all of a sudden, like having a challenge to your belief about the existence of God or that, that Jesus rose from the dead, or, you know, so, some really deeply held, like, cherished belief uh, around which we've organized our lives uh, that reached down into the level of our worldviews. When we start to think, oh, this might be false, that can be a really difficult struggle. But I think, again, that's, that's, what, that's doubt. That's what it is. Okay, but then doubt manifests in a bunch of different ways. And I think that James chapter 1 talks more about the manifestation of doubt um, because what I'm what I really think doubt boils down to again in this in this core sense is an honest what I call an honest struggle not that somebody who's in the James one situation isn't honest but just that, that honest sort of like questioning or struggling with something um, the Bible is actually very sympathetic. Um, to those with who just have questions, sort of like don't understand what to believe or what not to believe, or they're just sort of struggling. I mean, I think the clearest verses on this would be in Jude, um, where uh, Jude, you know, in- implores his readers to have mercy on those who doubt. I think that's Jude one, it's like one twenty four or one twenty three, maybe somewhere in there. But um, Jude's a really short book, so you. Sure, you can find yeah. it, but uh, right, he says, "Have mercy on those who are who have doubts." And um, earlier in Jude, again, really short book, but he's like with the strongest of terms, like calling out people who are making trouble. And I think that again, doubts can sort of manifest in that sort of moral way where we're making trouble for people, and that we we become like angry, and we kind of have these like ill intentions and so on. Um, Right. Um, but those that just have some questions, and I think that's where you see it in Jesus's life, too, that when somebody knows better and somebody's in the grips of fear or they're in the grips of like not sure they really want to be part of this, Jesus doesn't have a whole lot of patience. But when it's just somebody who's like, you know, help my unbelief, <laughs> you know, like the father of the son possessed by the demon, uh, Jesus healed the son right he he provide he he did help the man's belief uh by healing the son and so like you see that you see those two attitudes i think not a lot of patience for those that are troublemakers and we've all probably been there uh but a lot of patience and it's in 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 that and i want to say that it, for those that are just having that sort of honest struggle and and that's what i want to say that's that's what I'm looking at. That's what I'm saying is is a place we find ourselves is in that honest struggle. And 
that can be a very valuable experience if we lean into it in the right way. But the last thing I'll say too, uh, and sorry, I'm talking so much, but, um, but the other thing about the James passage is James is telling us we shouldn't, let's, let's say just, you know, in a sort of general, without a lot of nuance, James is just saying, you know, we shouldn't doubt. Well, I agree with that. Like, I don't want to be that double-minded man, but, but unstable in my, all my ways. But I don't know what, James 1 doesn't tell me what to do about that either. And so it, could, it can be the case that even though we, we don't want to, like, end, again, doubt isn't the destination. Um, even if we're doing it in a way that's, we're troublemakers, we realize, and we become convicted, and we say, I don't want to be double-minded. I don't want to be unstable in my, all my ways. Well, that can still be a very valuable experience. Like our mistakes, um, right, can be these very valuable experiences. And that's not to say that that's a good thing. But hey, look, yeah, we shouldn't be double-minded. Does anybody disagree? Right? We should press. But what do we do about that? And that's part of what I'm trying to do, I guess, in the book is to say, when we find ourselves in that place of doubt, we don't want to stay there ultimately, but don't also don't run from it. Don't don't ignore it. Don't just pack it down and hope it goes away because usually the doubts, you know, come back. And for me, at least, they've always brought friends with them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, what I mean, and, and I'm in a worse state than I was before. And I, I, and I don't, of course, know John Steingart and I don't know exactly his story. I have listened to a little bit of his public uh, discussions that he's had. But I do wonder, like, had he sort of leaned in and been, you know, you know, really taken those honest questions that he had and, and leaned into them, would he be in the same place that he is now? I, I don't know, of course, but, I, you know, right. I'd like to hope that, you know, he could have found the answers because none of the questions that I've heard him raise have been these knockdown, drag out objections to Christianity that there isn't whole books written on that, you know, address the, the questions. Yeah, and I can resonate with that. But, you know, there will be people who say that it seems antithetical to faith. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to bring up a couple scriptures for you because a lot of people think, like, faith is supposed to be certain. Mm -hmm. Some people, even when they evangelize, they'll be like, hey, do you 100% know you're going to heaven? And if it's 99%, well, you're not saved. So, for example... Hebrews 11.1, very famous passage on faith, it says, Now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. I'll bring a couple other passages. Um, Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 11, verse 23, is also Matthew 21.21, that faith without doubt can move mountains. Mm -hmm. And then also in Matthew 14, when Peter tries to follow him walking on water, Peter starts to sink. And Jesus is like, hey, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So, some Christians will argue, particularly those who are in the presuppositionalist camp, um, Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know, it's a particular apologetic approach that they would argue is superior to others because it grants them certainty and it comes from a place of certainty. So, they reject like this middle ground that you can have with non-Christians where you can have like a neutral talking point, or at least some presuppositionalists Mm -hmm. say this. How, what would you say about that and how would you define faith? What do you think scripture is saying about faith? Yeah. Really good question. I think it's getting clear on these definitions that really mm-hmm. matters because if we define doubt as 
you know, something like unbelief or disbelief or something, then of course that's not good. Like, you know what I mean? But I don't think we should define doubt that way. And that's, you know, uh, one of my favorite guys and, and most helpful guys for me through the years has been Oz Guinness. You know, he's, he, his early years, like doubt was sort of the thing that he wrote on the most. And he makes that claim that, you know, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Um, unbelief is. And and it really kind of makes sense because it's like if you're in a place of doubt, you haven't given up faith yet. You you still believe, like you know what I mean. Because if you didn't believe, then there wouldn't be anything to doubt. Uh, so you you really are in a kind of well, I I don't. I was going to say you're kind of in this middle position, but I don't even think that's quite right. So it all, but it all depends on how we define these things. So the way I define faith is ventured trust. So it's trust. It's it's not a intellectual state, even though it though it often involves intellectual states, but it's a it's a place of trust. But but it's trust, not from a distance, right? So it's it's one thing to sort of say, "Hey, I trust that airplane over there. I think it's probably going to you know get to where it's going just fine." That's trust from a distance. I think what what it really changes mere trust into faith is when we get on board the airplane, right? So now we are venturing, we are risking ourselves. Um, we are, you might even say, entrusting ourselves to the airplane. I think that's a place of faith. And so then where does certainty come in? Well, so I think, you know, that's one version of, of Hebrews 11, 1. And I, I think this, again, it all just depends on how we understand the word certainty. And I'm I got mixed feelings about the term, uh, <laughs> right? I have a love-hate relationship. Now, uh, this, this word certainty can mean a lot of different things. And so one way that I think, it, you know, we use it, and I think most people, and it might, that's probably the, the translator has this in mind, Hebrews 11.1 1, is something like, my mind is made up. Faith is when I've made my mind up and I'm going to entrust myself fully to God you know, something in that sense. But there's a, there's more of a philosopher's sense of certainty, you know, going back to Descartes and others that would see certainty as something like, there's no possible way in which my belief is false. <laughs> like that's way stronger than my mind is made up, you know, because I might, I might have my mind made up about, say, who I'm going to vote for in the next election. I don't, but uh, let's say I let's say I do have my mind made up. That's not to say that there's no possible way in which I could be wrong about it. You see what I mean? And so, that notion of certainty is the one that I think is really harmful. Is when we say it has to be the case that there's no possible way in which your belief in Christianity is false. Well, I'm not there. And I, I actually think neither are you guys and neither are the presuppositionalists and neither are anybody who says that. I just don't think they're actually there if that's the notion of certainty that we have in mind because we could be wrong. And the reality is that we, we don't have it all figured out. Like that, that's the thing that I always, you know, when I get to talk to students especially, and I don't, I've often not warned the leaders, which I probably should warn the leaders when I'm going to do this, but uh, I'll have the leaders raise their hand if they have any questions about Christianity that they don't know the answers to. Right? And 
100 percent of the time every leader raises their hand because that's all of us and so if certainty is there's no possible way in which we are wrong then the second we have an unanswered question that we don't know exactly what to do with we don't have certainty anymore and so if that's required for faith then we're in trouble and i think that's what plays out in a lot of um what I should have said too at the beginning, one one big reason to write the book was because there's so many kids who are walking away from the faith these days. I mean, there's people walking away, but there's a, there's a big, you know, sort of statistical um, trend when it comes to college students who are walking away from the faith. We call it the youth exodus. And it's upwards mm-hmm. to 60 to 80% of kids that are walking away. I think that one reason why people are walking away is because they think they have certainty. They've been told that they need to have certainty, right? And then they find themselves on a college college campus someplace, and they have some person all of a sudden challenging their faith in the way that they never imagined possible. Uh, they didn't realize there was hard-hitting questions about, say, evil and pain and suffering or hiddenness or science or textual sorts of issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, they don't know how to answer those questions. And they think, oh my goodness, I don't have certainty anymore. The whole thing must go. (laughs) The whole thing comes crashing down. So I have a whole chapter on this on certainty, and I call it certainty is a house of cards, because that's kind of what it's like. If we have it built with the need for certainty, in that, again, absolute sense, we might have the whole thing resting on that, right? With, a, with a, those big house of cards, you take one little card out, the whole thing comes crashing down. That's the way I think a lot of, again, especially youth, um, you know, young people, uh, I'm trying to not sound old when I say that. Uh, a lot of our youth say, you know, college students, they realize the whole thing comes crashing down because they don't mm. have that certainty. And I, I want to say, neither do I. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this idea of having your mind made up, that's fine. But how absolute is that? And I think the, a much better term that I, I like a lot better is the idea of confidence. We should be mm-hmm. aiming at confidence, like rational confidence. Confidence that Christianity is true, not thinking that we have to get to this absolute sense of certainty, of, but we just get to that place where we're confident. So it's like, when I'm about to get on the airplane... Do I have absolute certainty that it's going to get me where I'm going to go? No. And neither does anybody else. That's the reality. Even if they say they do, they don't. Because we can't possibly know that with absolute certainty. But can we be confident? Yeah. And and then it's like that takes off the pressure in a way because it's Mm. that tolerates having some questions that we don't know exactly what to do. Uh, which way to go with, you know what I mean? And so it's like, we can have some really deep and difficult questions about our faith, like I do sitting here right now, right here. Uh, and so does everybody. And still be 100% confident that it's true and place my faith, like get on the airplane, even though I've got some questions that I don't know exactly what to do with. And one last thing to say is, a really important passage for me here is 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where Paul talks about seeing through a glass dimly or darkly. And some translations have it as a, a, a seeing through a mirror. So like, it's a statement about our epistemology. It's, it's a statement about, you know, what, what our 
epistemic state is like how how do we know and it's really limited <laughs> like that, that if that's not limited i don't know what is uh no he, paul pictures a day in which we will have a, a sense of certainty at least a greater confidence right where we're going to know in full but at this point we see through a glass dimly and so of course we're going to have questions of course some of those questions are going to cause us to have some intellectual struggles that's just part of the package uh, for us who are very limited. Certainty is, is not something we can attain, I think, in that absolute sense uh, in this lifetime, at least. Mm. Yeah, and maybe a good example of this is, I don't know if you heard, I'm not going to say this guy's name, but a presuppositionalist who was semi-well-known among online Christian apologists, he recently renounced the faith. And oh, he was really? a okay. presuppositionalist, you know. Okay. He was so he was a guy running around saying, you know, I got certainty. You know, maybe what happened to him was what you said. Right, a house of cards fell down for him because he couldn't answer certain mm-hmm. things. So, yeah. Angela, is there, is there anything you want to ask? The things that you're saying is like stirring so many other like thoughts, and I like how you shifted from absolute certainty to confidence yeah. and a rational confidence, a studied confidence, because to say, I, I feel like it's almost prideful to say we can be absolutely certain about yeah. God or the faith. It, it assumes that we've arrived right. and we've encompassed every aspect of who he is and it limits him too and makes him smaller to something that even humans can even comprehend anyway. And so I, I like that shift in definition and that's just a thought I had, but there's like a beauty in that there's a a relational depth that is an ongoing journey that we get to be a part of. And that's something I think absolute certainty can sometimes take away. It's that, that beauty and that joy and that, that wonder and so I, I feel like that's something that people don't really talk about either is that yeah. aspect of it. So I really yeah. like that shift. Yeah, that's great. It, now, I think you can grow and and sort of get to that more mature faith right. where you're not just, again, like kind of the James 1 passage where we're kind of beat up. We're just, you know, driven by the wind and so on. Like, again, that's a place of immaturity. Call that doubt. But that's not where we want to stay. But how do we get out of it? That's the real question. And I think we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, but when you look at like the biblical writers, like reading the book of, you know, reading the Psalms and some of like the prophets in the Old Testament and where they're just crying out like, God, where are you? Mm-hmm. And do we want to stay there? No, of course not. But mm-hmm. is it okay to go through those difficult seasons where we're really questioning Yes, especially if the other side of that is a deeper, more abiding faith and a greater confidence. And as you, I think, put it, Angela, that it's like, and this is absolutely, definitely my heart in this, is that we would like know God better as a result, like relationally, devotionally. the, The verse I easily talk about the most, especially with students, is Loving God with all of our mind, where Jesus, you know, is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, like, he could have said a lot of things, you know, uh, having no other gods before God or, you know, those kinds of things. Like, pick any of the Ten Commandments. Could have been that. But he doesn't. He goes with the Shema. He he goes with this idea that we should love God 
mm-hmm. with all of our hearts, souls, and minds. And I think that's just the big question is, what does it mean to love God with our minds? Right. It's an odd phrase, if we're being honest. Mm-hmm. It's one that we haven't, like m- many of yeah. us haven't thought about. I know I hadn't thought about this a lot. But I think that's the picture that you described, is that we are asking questions. We, we might have some struggles with these. We're kind of crying out, not for any other reason than to love God and to know him better. Mm, yeah. And with that sort of, sort of mindset, rather than the John Steingard, you know, kind of like pack it down, you know, ignore it, or the presuppositionalist just sort of pretend like those aren't there, uh, we lean into that, admit the messiness of it, admit our faults, admit our mm-hmm. limits here and our struggles. But why? To know God, to know and love and pursue God with all of who we are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, before we moved on to more addressing individuals and churches, I was going to ask you yeah. a question that you seem to have already answered, which is why the heck isn't God more obvious? Why does God yeah. even let doubt happen? Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like you're pointing to these character-building traits that might come from doubt. I think so. And, and I think that I've really come to the place where I don't think God's primary goal is to get us to intellectually believe in Him. Hmm. Like, I don't, I don't think that's all that He's after. <laughs> uh, I was going to say it more provocatively. Um, and the more provocative way to say it is, I don't think God cares if people believe in him or not. Um, I think what he cares about is faith. What he cares about is like genuine followers. So what I mean by that is, so I don't know what it's like in, in your church or in the Asian American community, but in, the, in, in my community, we got a lot of people showing up to church on, you know, near Christmas time coming up. Like we're going to have multiple services all of a sudden <laughs> that are packed mm-hmm. out, you know, <laughs> a lot of folks showing up Easter time, same thing. These are people that I don't see them like saying, what are you talking about? There's a virgin birth. And what are you talking about? That Jesus is the incarnate son of God and whatever, or in Easter time, like, you know, what do you mean? Jesus rose from the dead. That's no, we know that doesn't happen. So, so presumably these are folks that believe like mm-hmm. intellectually believe. And I'm not saying it's unimportant to intellectually believe. I'm just saying mere intellectual belief is not what God is after. Uh, What God is after is faith. And so if God was more obvious, he could get a lot more people intellectually believing. And we should be sort of terrified of that option, I think, because God's being more obvious might even be lethal, right? As as he says to Moses that you you can't see me or you would die. Um, Mm. So... We could all be terrified into submission and intellectually believe in God, but that's not the people that he's after. Uh, He's after people who will genuinely follow him in faith. And so I think a really good picture of this, too, is in the life and ministry of Jesus, where Jesus is doing these really explicit things like healing people, doing these miracles. And what happens is he gets these huge crowds that you don't get the sense at all from the, the narrative of the Gospels that it's sort of like job well done. Now I've I've built myself a big platform, you know, like the way a lot of celebrity pastors seem to be after, you know, like I've built this huge platform. Now I'm good. No, it's like he then starts talking about discipleship, you know, saying some pretty extreme things about taking up crosses and, you know, uh, everything that's involved in actual discipleship. 
And what happens? People walk away. And I, mm. and I love that passage where Jesus turns to the disciples and say, says, you know, are you going to go too? And they're like, where are we going to go? Mm. You have the words of life. Yeah. Right. And I think that's that's what he's after is people who will be captivated by God genuinely and realize that this is the way. Like this, no matter how difficult it is, this is the way. And so I think that it could be the case. I, I'm where I kind of land on this is to say God is as obvious as he needs to be in order to accomplish the goal of faith. Because right, because I think when imagining God being more obvious, I think in a way it might, it could actually mean less people come to Him in actual faith, because they're terrified and they're or they're just wanting the the miraculous show or whatever, and they kind of get distracted by mm-hmm. those things rather than coming to Him in faith. And so maybe He's as obvious as He can be to accomplish mm-hmm. His goals. So God is not after philosophers who assent to Proposition G, right. the Christian God exists. Is that right. what you're saying? That's right. That's right. I'm speaking my love language. Okay, well, then we can move on to some application questions for individuals yeah. and churches. In terms of telling people how to deal with doubt, you're saying, hang yeah. on. Um, yeah. I just want to ask you briefly, the big buzzword these days is deconstruction. Yes. And how would you define deconstruction? I hear it used in a, a bajillion different ways. Right. So how do you understand deconstruction? How do you respond to it? Yeah, I'm, I, again, sort of love-hate relationship here or, or mixed emotions about <laughs> the, the term because in some ways I love it. I really do. And that's, you know, you, you, you hear a lot of voices today really kind of putting it down. But there's some ways in which I really actually love this idea of deconstruction. Now, there's a historical background to it that is just being used in different ways. And a a lot of people have pointed this out. And so given the way that it's used in like literary theory and, you know, postmodern theory and so on, uh, we we don't want to align ourselves with that. And it's like, well, okay, but like words take on a life of their own. And most people, probably 99% of people using the word deconstruction have no clue who Jacques Derrida is and, you know, these others. And so, I think it's we're at a place where that term has taken on a life of its own. And when we look at it, I kind of like the idea (laughs) in the sense that we would break down, we would really examine and question our beliefs and really say, like, do I have good reasons to believe this? And this is totally my story as I I give it in the book that I realized I hadn't done that. I I had Mm -hmm. never really questioned, not in the not in the really honest way. I'd never really questioned my faith. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to youth group, youth retreats, camps, mission trips, like you name it, I did it as a kid. And I'm sitting in seminary, literally preparing for ministry. And all of a sudden it hit me that I had never really asked those deep and difficult why questions. And so I think I'm happy to label that as going through a time of deconstruction. Now, that's the love side of it. The hate side of it uh, for me with the term is that so often, for some reason, this idea of deconstruction just seems to lead in one direction. And it's just mm-hmm. another way to say that I'm deconverting. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, it's sort of like I'm saying my experience of really deeply questioning 
led me to a far more confident faith because what I discovered is the whole world of apologetics that was the, the best kept secret of Christianity and still kind of remains that way for a lot of mm-hmm. Christians is they don't have the first clue how much evidence there is for Christianity that people have devoted their lives to writing these books at all different levels. Like it's crazy. And so when I, when I went through my season of doubt, that was really difficult. And I, it was, it was maybe going to be the case that I walk away from the faith, right? Mm -hmm. That, that was that moment for Mm -hmm. me that was like, I may not be a Christian after this. And (laughs) And it's scary, and it's difficult, and so on. But like I said, what I discovered is lots and lots of reasons to believe (laughs) that I had not sort of been motivated to look into previous. And so for some reason, the story is almost always like the John Steingard story, where finally questions it for the first time, honestly, and then walks away. And I don't. I just don't know why it leads that way. And I and I I don't like that the trend in the sort of deconstruction community, so to speak, is one of deconverting. And and I'm not saying I'm not questioning you know their integrity. I'm just saying that when I listen to a John Steingard, I'm really surprised how lightweight, if I can be honest that way, the objections <laughs> are that led him to walk away from the faith mm-hmm. or at least like not necessarily lightweight, but like there's really good answers to those questions that you're, you know, couldn't find the answers to, and they're not that hard to find. Um, and that seems to be the deconstruction trend that I don't, I kind of doesn't compute for me because it, and again, you know, when people say like, well, I discovered this question or whatever. And I'm thinking there are whole books written about that. Like, there's no discovery here. It's like, uh, anyway, so I think that I'm okay with the term itself, but I'd like to, in a way, rebrand it because I think it just, it's too much in the, and and I think our efforts are being focused too much on like saying, don't use the term. Don't like, it's not a, like, I think the term is here to stay. Like that's how these things go. But I think we need guidance of how to do this well and do this right and and not just be worried about the terminology. Yeah, and I like what you say, because what I would say about deconstruction is, you know, it does come from Jacques Derrida, who's a philosopher who I think make analytic philosophers want to shoot themselves right. because he's such difficult read. And right. some people would say he doesn't make any sense. But um <laughs> Like, you're right, like, the way most people use it is not the way he used it. Because, you know, if they just mean, I'm questioning, well, it's like, oh, great. Yeah. You know, no problem. But one of the things they might be borrowing from him and also how certain people are using it in maybe certain sectors of academia is they are questioning already from a place of deep suspicion of yeah. the oppressive structures yes. that are there, and particularly the church. And the problem with that is that then that's no longer on his questioning because yes. then whenever like, and I've experienced this, whenever like uh, you give an answer, mm-hmm. so they're like, well, oh, you're yeah. only saying that because that's what, you know, the white colonial Christians have taught you. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm not even white. But, right. you know, that, so they just immediately dismissed it, the answer right. offhand. And it's like, okay, that's not honest questioning. So 
that's my problem with how often deconstruction is practiced. And like yeah. you said, that's probably why it seems to go one direction so yeah. frequently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think posture matters. Mm-hmm. Um, like what attitude we have in doing this. And this is, this is probably one of the most pastoral points, even for myself that, you know, I came on with writing the book. Um, is that posture matters because why yeah why is it that some people question and they walk away and some people question and they you know grow in their faith like I did well i think your the attitude you have going into it really matters so i talk about um and i, I don't love to label this as skepticism because i i feel like there's a lot of people in the sort of atheist you know community that happily wear that label of skeptic and they think that I'm talking about them necessarily and I'm not necessarily actually I'm talking about that skeptical sort of attitude that you don't ever accept any truth you know maybe we call it a radical skeptic or something and it's that person who says hey give me your evidence for Christianity and then I lay out all this evidence you know two hours of you know, talking or something, and they say, oh, man, I just wish there was some evidence. And it's like, <laughs> no, it might be the case that my evidence doesn't compel you to believe, but don't say there's no evidence. Like, that suggests to me there's a kind of attitude that's operative and a sort of posture, as I, as I like to call it, a, a posture that's really driving the ship, right? So it's sort of like, if I didn't want to believe, I bet I could get myself into a place to not believe too. But that, again, wouldn't be pursuing the truth as a first importance. And so what the sort of posture that I think we need to have is that of a truth seeker, right? That mm-hmm. we are, uh, we don't have the end in mind necessarily. And that's where I say, like, for me, it was important that I don't, I don't know that I'm going to come out as a Christian after this process. And I think that is at least sort of um, indicative of the sort of posture one has. And so as we ask these questions, be a truth seeker. But I also think too that, again, going with the sort of um, Matthew twenty two thirty seven passage of loving God with our minds, Jesus is inviting this kind of thing. I think because I don't know what else it means to love God with our minds other than to ask questions. And when we ask questions, we're probably going to experience a little, like the deep questions, the difficult questions. We're going to experience a little tension. Uh, and if that's what doubt is, then we're probably going to experience some doubts. And so Jesus is inviting us to love him with our minds. What does that posture look like? Well, you know, I like to give the example of teaching here on a university campus, especially. Uh, it always happens, right? The first semester, you have these couples that pop up, you know, these, the, and they, they're like, you know, they can't fair to be apart for like more than five seconds kind of thing. And I actually think that might be a pretty good picture of, I mean, it's like disgusting for most of us to watch this happen, <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean? But that sort of posture, like, what are they doing? They're, they're like, they can't go five seconds without asking questions and, and pursuing each other and knowing each other and so on. Like, now it's, it's thin, because it's new love, right? It's the sort of thing that maybe a month or two later they might be doing, they might be falling in love with somebody else. Like that, you know, this kind of thing happens. But that sort of intellectual curiosity that's so intense with, you know, new love 
I don't think that's a bad picture to see. Like that's the way in which we should pursue God intellectual, like with intellectual curiosity. Notice now in the posture of a lover of God. And, and so my kind of line that I always like to give is like to say a marriage where there's no intellectual curiosity at all, that's a marriage that's in trouble. Uh, mm. And I think a faith where there's no intellectual curiosity at all is a faith that's in trouble. So that we, we should be asking these questions, but again, not as skeptics, but in the posture of a lover of God, uh, of pursuing him, of, of wanting to know him. And I think that makes a huge difference for how we go about, because think of like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, like they're asking questions too, right? There's a lot of questions in Matthew 22, actually, that where they're challenging Jesus and so on, but they're not in the posture of a seeker. They're not in the posture of a, certainly not a lover of God. They're in the, they're in a kind of like skeptical or cynical sort of posture. And I think in that posture, you're not going to find the truth. It's just part mm. of that's that, that's part of the deal. So a question pops in my mind. Practically, what would you say is like a good stopping point? Because we've talked about how we, we don't want to stay in like this unstable yeah. position. Because I have talked to Christians and they ask me like a billion questions. And, you know, I got a life, I got stuff to do. And so it's like every few days is like, <laughs> yeah. you know, boom, question. And like next, you know, a week later, boom, another question. Yeah. On one hand, they're really struggling with their faith. So I'm sympathetic. On the other hand, it's like, yeah. I don't know if I can answer every question under the sun. Yeah. Be so, yeah. Um, yeah. When's well, enough? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. For that so, confidence. I think that we hang on to get a little emotional distance and then we, we begin doubting our doubts, but what's the goal? Like, what's the, what, why are we doing all that? Well, in some ways it's because it might be the case, right? This is my biggest fear in writing the book. It might be the case that somebody leans into their doubts and they walk away as a result, right? And that's, I don't, of course, want that to happen. I don't think that should happen because I think the evidence is so good. However, I've got to say, to be honest, that that is a possibility at least. Um, But what I'm really after is somebody that will stand back and say, okay, I've considered the case now. Like I've got the whole case for Christianity before me. And I don't know what to do with this piece here. This is really bugging me. You know, this, this, I don't have an answer for this question over here. It might bother you and it might bug you. And it might be something that we lean into. We really don't find much, we don't make much progress. Um, I want to say that's okay. We see through a glass dimly. And it's okay to sort of have that there. And it shouldn't unseat this massive pile of evidence we have for the truth of Christianity just because we don't know how to answer this question. Now, where it gets tough is when these start adding up and we can't find our way clear. But, you know, there are a few things that I don't know exactly what to do with. Like, I'm still pressing in for sure, like like I've said a few Mm -hmm. times myself on some things, but that does not unseat. I've got too much good evidence such that it would be actually irresponsible of me to like say, well, I guess it's all false uh, because I can't answer this question, right? So I think what I would say is we need to be okay to just say, I don't know on some things, because I think that some things we don't know if we're honest. 
Um, and we should be honest in that. But what should we do with that if we say, oh, I can't answer this, is not walk away necessarily so long as we have all that other evidence sort of in play. Because I think that there are too many people who walk away from the faith, despite the fact that they have all this evidence for its being true, just can't answer this one question. Again, it's probably a, a, a kind of certainty issue that they, well, I can't be certain about it anymore. Uh, so therefore, what, walk away, I guess. Um, I guess that's the goal for all of us, is that we would lean into all of these things, not just where our doubts are, but like asking, what are the reasons to believe God exists? Well, there's some real, there's like an amazing number of arguments for God's existence, right? Planigan says two dozen or so. I think he's undershooting. Uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of really powerful uh, evidence that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. I think there's really good reasons to trust Scripture. All that stuff figures into a really, I think, extremely compelling case for the truth of Christianity. And then comes this question, uh, I don't know, something like uh, hiddenness or the problem of evil or the Old Testament violence. And I don't know exactly what to say about all those things, but I can... I got, I got to not separate that from the this large edifice of evidence that I, in fact, have. And so I think that's the place of peace. That's where somebody sort of has peace of mind, where they say, I don't know the answers to these questions. I'm going to keep pursuing, but be okay with saying, I don't know. But I, I know too much for that to bother me too much. You know what I mean? So like it's, I think it's enough when we find it, sort of find peace given how much we do, in fact, know. Um, I do want to talk about churches, what, okay. what you would coach churches to do. So I know you're not Asian, but um, <laughs> we, we come from Asian, we, or at least we have history of Asian, <laughs> Asian American <laughs> churches. So you don't just have to talk about Asian churches, sure. but you know, in our culture, we have a pretty high view of authority. Yes. And so it's like uncomfortable to raise questions and doubts. It's yeah. sometimes frowned upon, particularly to ask like a pastor or leader, because yeah. it's almost like taken as disrespect. So how would you coach churches, you know, in that setting or in another setting about how to deal with doubts, how yeah. to maybe teach people how to deal with doubts? Yeah, I've been thinking of, you know, you sent me that question uh, early and I've been thinking about it because I guess I feel inadequate a little bit to answer the question. I think that it's probably better for you guys to figure out what that exactly looks like because i do think like like we don't i don't want to just say burn it all down like you know <laughs> uh, be careful we might get canceled yeah later. that's right <laughs> i want I, I think that there's important in other words don't just reject the cultural aspects of the asian american church culture i i just think that's that i wouldn't dare to say that for sure so there, there's, there's going to be what this looks like. But I guess as I was thinking about it, what came to mind actually is, you know, some of the protests that are going on in China right now uh, over COVID mandates and, and things like that, that uh, how, does, how does change happen? Well, it might be that Figuring out what this looks like best in that culture, in your culture, it, your, like your church culture, but it might be that there does need to be someone who steps up and says, but what about this? You know what I mean? Like, 
doing it respectfully, but having the boldness to ask the questions. Because what I fear is that a almost like a, a too strict adherence to the authority structures in our lives, while it's commendable in various ways, and we, you know, <laughs> I wish my kids uh, <laughs> would uh, uh, learn a thing or two. No, you know what I'm saying? Like, like there is, it's commendable in ways, but I think that there is ways in which that can be overdone too. And so for someone who finds that they have really never asked the question, even though that might be sort of culturally unpopular or even frowned upon, I guess my my heart wants to say, you might need to figure out a way to do that respectfully. That's not, you know, but, but, but ask the question, even if it is frowned upon, because I think these, these matters are too important. And, and I would certainly, you know, so I, I think of somebody in a different context, let's say somebody that's, uh, you know, has that sort of cultural aspect, but they believe, you know, some other religion. Um, well, I want them to ask those questions there too. You know what right. I mean? Like I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. want them to just say, oh, it's just p- cultural. Like I, you know, we just follow our authorities. Well, that has, of course, disastrous um, outcomes and consequences to it and eternal consequences to it. And so I think that for some of us, it's it's time to do it, ask those questions, even if, but, but of course, figure out what that looks like. And I think that's where I don't have any real authority to say what it looks like. Um, there's sometimes that we do need to be disagreeable and... Uh, you know, ask, ask the deep and difficult questions, even if it's frowned upon. What do you, okay. what do you think about that? Cause I, again, I, I say this all with, you know, a bit tentative. Yeah. I was, it was a trick question. I was trying to get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm trying to no. get you in trouble. So. Um, no, because you're, you're a white guy. So, you know, get you in trouble for that. No, I think you're right. There is a way to challenge the prevailing culture and so you're going to have to step on some toes, but that doesn't yeah. mean you have to like be a bull in the China shop and yes. just knock everything over because that right. tends to not help. So there needs to be, and, and you're probably right too, it probably needs to come from within yeah. and not people parachuting in. And, you know, that's often how cultural change is best to happen, comes yeah. from within. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, too, to say to the those that are in leadership to say, these are, it's just important that we create space for people to ask mm-hmm. questions. And again, it doesn't have to be like throw out all decorum and throw out all, you know, encouraging people to get super disrespectful and whatever. But for the leaders to say, hey, look, it's okay. It's okay for us to sort of be on a journey, have some questions and ask those questions. And again, for the leaders probably to say, and this is what, this is the right way to do it and, and model those things too. Yeah, well, we would love to ask you a million more questions, but we know you have to go. Yeah. But thank you so much, Dr. Dickinson, for joining us. We really appreciate it. If I do have questions, I'll shoot you an email or something. Yeah, um, good. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And, thank uh, guess, you. Yeah, we'll let you go to your meeting. Okay. My pleasure to be with you and blessings to you. And thanks, Isaac, for this. It's great. Good to see you. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. Well, Angela, um, do you have any thoughts yourself about, you know, what he said? Mm-hmm. What do you think churches should do? Any questions that have popped into your head? Yeah. I mean, this is such a huge topic and I really appreciate 
just some of what he was saying. And I can already foresee some people being dissatisfied. <laughs> I can see someone who has doubts and is in a season of deconstruction and they tune in. They're like, okay, hoping that this answers everything. But then obviously it's like there are moments where, yeah, even, you know, Dr. Dickinson is like, I don't know. And so I could already foresee that. But <clears throat> we didn't even, because we don't have time, we didn't, we didn't address any specific question. It exactly. Was just broadly. Yeah, very broadly. Yeah, Yeah, but I thought it was still helpful in the sense of this idea of being honest. Like you raised that as the honest questioning. Are you trying to prove a point in your deconstruction? Because I feel like that's actually more accurate. And Dr. Dickinson was mostly pointing to those who are very honest and like wanting to learn, wanting to grow. But I think for me, my evaluation of deconstruction in this generation is more to prove a point and to it there's like an agenda behind it so there's that and then two just this question of like okay like if most deconstruction is actually emotional or it has an agenda like how do we address that aspect of deconstruction and doubt and part of it's yeah like he was saying seeking truth and studying it and researching it, allowing that like truth to lead us and our feelings. And I, I do believe that's, there's a truth aspect to it, but also like to be self-aware and like discern. Yeah. Like how much of it really is like you're hurt by the church. Like you had a bad case or you heard about an abuse scandal. Now you're skeptical of whole churches or like men in power. When you see images of white people preaching, like (laughs) how much of that triggers you, you know, like, and there's like an honest aspect of that too. But I think it's definitely dealt with differently. And I think being self-aware to make those distinctions is helpful because if you don't diagnose it right, no matter how much intellectual truth you seek out it's not gonna answer your emotional emotions that come from like some of your doubts and so that's just the thought i had throughout this whole episode mm-hmm. it's just like man really you need we need to be self-aware like is this intellectual is this emotional is this like a situation that's causing her is it like your biases or other things that you've heard outside of the faith that's impacting your decisions and so i think that's so important to how someone journeys off. Yeah, I wish we had time. I was going to ask him more about like how to research and how would he recommend doing that? Mm-hmm. Because uh, like I brought up, a lot of people who quote unquote deconstruct, they're coming at it from a certain approach that's not really geared towards truth. Like you said, it's more geared towards proving a point or right. um, it's like almost like a badge of honor, particularly among progressive yeah. Christians. It's like, oh, I deconstructed. Um, <laughs> And, you know, they're not really honestly seeking these answers and how the church has answered for centuries. And that's something yeah. you know, Dr. Dickinson pointed out, like, you know, it's not like these questions are new. And I do think Dr. Dickinson brought up good points about, like, doubting your doubts. Yeah. And, and that goes for deconstruction. I've sometimes been a little snarky with them. I've been like, deconstruct or deconstruction. Because sometimes it's like, oh, you, you're unwilling to question this standpoint that you've had of deconstructing. <laughs> and yeah. And you're just kind of shooting, shooting shots at everything else, but you're not willing to take that self-aware criticism. Exactly. And like you said. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a sense of like, honestly researching and also researching well, 
You know, yeah. I'm not saying like the layperson needs to read these very thick books, but you know, we that's why we've made episodes where we kind of poked a little fun at TikTok and social media. It's just like <clears throat> not that all of its stuff on there is bad. These are there's like YouTube channels that are good and but they're gonna yeah. be more like an hour and a half long. Right. Like these little snippets that you're getting off TikTok and stuff or Instagram stories, like maybe you should do like a little bit more than that. Just yeah. Suggesting. It's like funny that they trust that a lot more when it comes to like hundreds of years of research and truths like that have been but it just takes one tiktok video for people to be like oh my gosh like everything i know is a lie you know and so yeah i i think it's just like wow like the weight of a tiktok video is so much more than the bible or whatever whatever and so yeah i think that's a good point and i think another thing is people they find an answer they find a good answer he was saying there's really good answers but people are still dissatisfied that answer is not enough for them and a lot of it i think comes down to because they disagree like they don't want that to be the answer what i brought up too is like you answer it and then they ask another question and then another mm-hmm. and it's like that's yeah. why i kind of asked like okay what's the what's a reasonable stopping point <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah that's a different issue as well it's like if you disagree with the truth that is a reality in the world of god then that's a whole different thing that like a whole different journey and i think that's another big thing that i think people aren't talking about is like and a lot of it i think comes down to the lgbtq stuff is like i disagree that yeah, a loving or, god would blah, blah, blah. i don't yeah i don't like it yeah exactly yeah. yeah and so that's different than deconstruction it's just you disagree and like you want it a different way well it, it often like triggers deconstruction because it's right. coming from that emotional standpoint yeah yeah in your experience growing up in asian church how mm-hmm. did you think they dealt with that do you ever felt like they encouraged questions these like problem of evil problems of canonicity (laughs) anything like that (laughs) no i wish we talked about it more but we did it and that's with like so many other things obviously like issues of like sex like no one ever talks about it i mean unless like the pastor was yelling at the boys to stop watching porn (laughs) from the pulpit I know that growing up in the Asian church, we didn't get the luxury of asking questions or talking about these things. But I think it's getting better, at least in like the Asian churches I've been at. But we could definitely grow in that. And like in second generation churches. Yes, second generation. Yes, a lot better. But not in first gen churches or immigrant churches. And, mm-hmm. and so, like, I don't even know how to solve that. But I think. Honestly, I feel like if you just ask, it'll be okay. <laughs> like in my mind, I'm like, if you're genuinely curious, I really believe like pastors will answer. It depends. <laughs> it depends on like how like honest there will be in their answers or how extensive. Like it might be just an answer to shoo away the question, <laughs> or it could, you know, for yeah. some pastors, like be genuine conversations that becomes well and this goes into dr dickinson's point of like modeling that if you're a pastor or a leader in the church because i've I've heard stories of like people asking pastors or other people who've gone to seminary and a person Mm -hmm. who went to seminary their answer is oh i just never thought about that 
Mm. And uh, and they, and they just kind of shrugged their shoulders. And, and the person asking is like, "Are you serious? That like I thought you went to seminary. Are you supposed to like answer my questions?" Mm-hmm. And that's that kind of unfortunate that happens. But yeah. maybe a counter argument in terms of like dealing with doubt in church or introducing these questions is: shouldn't church be a place where you are edifying people, mm-hmm. particularly if they're younger? Like we shouldn't be telling them about hey, these are some pr- common objections to the canon of Scripture. Here's the mm-hmm. problem of evil. Here's an archaeological objection to mm-hmm. this particular passage. So some people will argue, like, no. Yeah, some people, yeah. You know, people, oh, no, we people are not ready to hear this stuff. We should not, because we're going to damage their faith if we introduce these questions. Um, do you think that's a, a fair concern? No. i mean you can get in the weeds about certain things and it just not be edifying like i think that is true things that are like not even a part of the core elements of christianity like yes what's one like the nephilim in genesis like are they like demons or are they really men or king lines yeah sure that maybe isn't the most edifying i mean it's fun for me but maybe not the most edifying when you can be talking about the gospel but i think that we do a disservice when we don't introduce these things because dr dickinson was saying is like they go to college and they hear these objections and they've never heard of it and they're like oh my gosh like the church is hiding these things from us you know and yeah, it, it's more damage yeah. in the future exactly they do more damage and for me it's like Bringing these things up is so beneficial because we're being honest and we're also introducing, there are actually conversations and answers throughout history that have dealt with these issues. Like it's not new. So when they hear for the first time in college, then yeah, they're going to be shaken. And so it's so healthy to be able to address it when people are growing up and in the youth and they should be taught apologetics. And I don't think it's destructive at all. Yeah. A good example of this is when I went to UT, there was a class that was known as a faith breaker. It was famous for that. <laughs> um, it was called Rise of Christianity. I forgot the professor's name. I actually liked the professor. He was an interesting character and uh-huh. New Testament scholar, but not a Christian or certainly not a conservative Christian. And, you know, Things like he only accepted that Paul wrote five to seven of the letters. I mean, obviously rejected that Paul wrote things like mm-hmm. the pastoral epistles. And I actually enjoyed the class. Mm-hmm. But because I had done a lot of my own research, like nothing he would bring up was new. But yeah, people and pastors even discouraging people from taking that class here in college. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it was known as the faith breakers class mm-hmm, for Christians. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, it really shouldn't be because, again, nothing in there was new. Yeah, right. And so I agree with you there. You know, obviously, you know, there's some wisdom, like, you know, sure. your kindergarten class at church, you don't need to bring <laughs> <that> up. <laughs> but definitely when they hit high school, I think. Yeah. It needs to be a concerted effort, to be honest. Like Exactly. Hey, here, here are some issues that come up. Yeah. And, and some of them, we're not even 100% sure how to answer. Sure. But... We are still confident, like Dr. Dickinson said, of the truth of the gospel and Christ. Right. And so it's not a house of cards mentality. It's like Mm -hmm. identifying the essentials of the Christian faith and being confident in them and then being able to have questions about other things. Yeah, exactly. So 
you know, it was it was just a helpful discussion and talk about how to deal with doubt itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I read his book and I wanted to bring him on, talk about it. So I would again encourage all the listeners to buy his book. Yeah. <laughs> like his book for him, Wandering Toward God by Dr. Travis Dickinson. Any closing words you want to say, Angela, to our audience or any encouragement? Yeah, I think in the same way, I had a lot of doubt and I, you know, grew up in a household where my dad believed in one thing and my mom believed in another. So my journey for truth and my seeking of truth began very early on uh, because I didn't know who was right. Is it my mom or my dad? Like, which church do I go to? Who do I follow? And so my heart was for absolute truth and who really is God? Like what is eternal life? The big questions in life. And when you're open to receive where you arrive with humility, God honors that. Like God wants to be found. He's not a God who delights in hiding for so long. You know, like the secret mystery, like it's like so plain and so clear and he wants to be found. And I think that's the encouragement is that God is someone who's going to reveal truth and he promises to be found if we seek him out. And that's what I found. And even throughout seminary and uh, going to UW and all these, like so many questions, and I still have questions, but I think the encouragement is that I'm not alone in that. A lot of times I would kind of limit the seeking of truth to even just this time, this generation, but even the thought that I can look to previous generations and their questions and their answers and be encouraged by that, I think blew my mind. That was a, one of the biggest things I learned in seminary was like, there are hundreds of years of research and doubting and answers and, you know, just all that to affirm the questions that you have and so it just builds a confidence, I guess, is what I'm saying. Just to encourage those who are in doubt in a phase of deconstruction, the Lord will guide you. Like the Lord is there. And that's the encouragement. I've walked with people who are going through deconstruction and and it's hard, but I think there's so much reward after it. And to not be stagnant. I think the worst thing you can do is be stagnant. Because like, I've seen people go into a season of deconstruction and they stop going to church. They stop asking questions. They stop researching. They're just like in this weird season of doubt, quote unquote, but they don't do anything about it. And it just grows and like people get cut off. And that's, I think, the danger of doubt and deconstruction is like if you're not moving, if you're not wandering toward the Lord, you see the book plug there. (laughs) (laughs) Then, What about you? Yeah, I, I don't disagree because mm-hmm. and the goal is not doubt and the goal is not instability. The goal is to honestly ask questions and hopefully come out the other side even stronger for it, even if yeah. it's a period of discomfort. Yeah. But hopefully that was helpful to you all. We will definitely take questions or comments, but you know, we always enjoy having guests like this. But uh, thank you for listening to the Inter Christianity Podcast. We will see you next time.